This is Dr. Rob Harder with the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, making your world better. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? What are the biggest challenges? What are the biggest obstacles? How should nonprofits fundraise in an economy that is constantly changing? All of these reasons combined led me to start this show. And it's my hope that through this series, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear from effective leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy the show as together we hear how they are making their world better. Well, there's an art to fundraising, right? In other words, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for effective fundraising. At the same time, however, and at the risk of sounding contradictory, there is a science to why and how people give. In fact, there is a growing industry around the neuroscience of philanthropy and fundraising that helps us understand how people make decisions and what drives their behavior. My guest today has many years of experience in the fundraising sector. His name is Bill Crouch, and he is the founder and CEO of BrightDot, which is a fundraising consultancy company that helps development professionals. Now, one of the unique aspects of their approach is that they utilize the coaching and expertise of psychologists in their training of fundraising professionals. This and other interesting topics are covered in this episode with Bill. Now, I know many of you are listening to this probably while you're on the treadmill or driving to and from work, but I think this is an episode in which you'll want to take some notes. Now, one last thing. I do want to give a shout out to Jada. She sent me a quick email letting me know that this podcast was helpful as a resource in helping her transition from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world as she moved into a full-time role at a nonprofit. First of all, Jada, thank you so much for sending that email. It's so encouraging to get those kinds of emails. And that's exactly why I started this podcast. So I'd love to hear from you. Um, give us a rating, first of all, on iTunes. I'd love always to get those ratings. It helps us get this podcast out to more people. But also you can send me an email. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Give me a comment. I would love to hear from you. All right, enough of the intro. Enjoy today's show. Well, Bill, thanks for being on the show today. Today's show is going to be all about the science of fundraising. And I want to dive right into this subject because it's one of the most critical aspects for nonprofit leaders to understand and to really do well. So I thought I'd start out with a stat that may surprise some of my listeners. At one time, fundraisers found about 90% of their gifts came from 10% of their donors. But today, it's much more like 95% of donations are made by only 5% of donors. So talk about that. Let's launch into that. Why is that the case? Why has this changed? Yeah. So, you know, it's a, we're living, obviously, in a very uh, changing demographic in our country for, from all different aspects. But one of the things that's really driven this that we believe as a firm is the 95-5 rule now is changes of the tax structure. Uh, you know, in 2017, there was a doubling of the standard deduction. It resulted in a 1.1% decline the next year. I, I have five children, and I know that not a one of them itemized their deductions the next year, and that wasn't a motivation for them because they have young households, and they're trying to you know hold on to as much as they can, even though they were taught the power of tithing. That sort of went out the window. You know, then the stock market has just exploded and it benefits those who have money in the stock market, right? Which is more of the wealthy. Donor advised funds, uh, you know, allow people to, particularly the wealthy, to go ahead and unload stocks that were, that were high capital um, improvements. They got their deductions right away. 
Right. As we know, there's lots of money sitting in places like Swab and Fidelity that have not been given to the nonprofits yet. And then, then the IRA special deduction for people over the age of 70 that can transfer their IRA to a nonprofit. So all those laws, you know, Rob, when I was growing up in this business and you too, we were always told that taxes were not the reason that people made gifts, but taxes have benefited the wealthy, the tax law changes, the middle class in America for not only tax reasons, but for a lot of reasons is disappearing the way that it was when I grew up. And so it's just made this shift where the wealthier are wealthier. And by, and you know, the good news is that the wealthy are giving away a lot of money. There's a lot of money being given away. But most nonprofits are built around the $500, $1,000 gifts. And those are the ones that are going to be more and more difficult to get in the future. It's really interesting you said that about the widening gap between upper income and lower income. I certainly feel like COVID really accentuated that. COVID just ripped that wide open and made it very clear across our country there's this dividing, you know, between again the upper income and lower income, and that middle class is disappearing, which is not a good thing for obviously for our country. Interesting how it impacts fundraising. Now, going into fundraising, your relationships are so key, right, when it comes to effective fundraising. And I'm curious, you know, what role could a fundraising professional like yourself play in helping a nonprofit further develop those long-term relationships, particularly with high-wealth donors in order to reach their fundraising goals, particularly with that shrinking gap of, you know, less donors are giving more of the percentage of their budget? Yeah. So it's really interesting, Rob. This is our experience. We don't have any research to back this up, but our experience in working with over 100 clients and then my 40 years in the fundraising business, interestingly, uh, probably a large, large percentage of fundraising professionals in this country grew up in middle to lower in class families, right? And then they're brought into a nonprofit and said, go raise money from the wealthy. And they are, they are intimidated. They don't know the vocabulary. They don't know that type of stuff. So what we believe the key is emotional intelligence. And so when we started our firm six years ago, our goal was to be an emotional intelligence training firm. That's what we were going to do. And we got a client. Our first client was a major university, and we trained their 147 development people in emotional intelligence. And the chancellor of the institution decided to raise their goal by almost a billion dollars because of the confidence he had in what one of the things we had trained them in. But most nonprofits, executives, and boards see that as fluff, and they're not willing to pay for the emotional training. But we know in dealing with high-wealth people, it's about building trust. It's about being socially intelligent. It's about having confidence. It's about being resilient, and that's where all the brain science begins to come in because it's very intimidating to have been from a middle-class family and walk into the office or the home of somebody who has the ability to give you $10 million, right? So we think understanding emotional intelligence, training in that area to give what we call audacious confidence to fundraising professionals particularly with the 95-5 rule. They're going to be spending a lot more time if they're fortunate with high wealth people. They've got to know, this is really interesting. 
We think etiquette lessons are important. They've got to know what fork and knife to use when they go out to eat with somebody in a high wealth area, because it's all about building this trust relationship. And that's where the limbic brain, and we can talk about that in a little bit, all comes into play. We just think if fundraising professionals would really focus on building their emotional intelligence, that is the number one way to build relationships with, with high wealth donors. So again, you're saying that emotional intelligence is probably the most important key and if you want to call it a strategy or maybe a skill set is probably a better way. The better they understand emotional intelligence, the better fundraisers they'll be. Is that what you're basically your research is pointing out? Correct. You know, in 2016, the Educational Advisory Board did a study about what's the difference between a good fundraiser and a great fundraiser. They had 1,200 people take profile assessment tool and 78% of them came back And it was very clear. It was high emotional intelligence. They call it the curious million, but it was all about emotional intelligence. So there's, there's a lot of data to show that's the key. That's fascinating. It makes total sense. Honestly, in my own experience, being in the nonprofit sector for a long time, I would 100% agree with you. And that's interesting that the science is actually backing that up. Now, it's interesting, there is a lot of neuroscience research out there that we could wade through and and learn from that helps us understand how people do make decisions and what drives their behavior. Now, specifically, as it pertains to fundraising professionals, I'm curious, like, how can we use our understanding of brain science to better anticipate a donor's financial decision-making? What would you say about that? Yeah, there's science to go along with this. But first, I've, I've got three things I like to say about that. The first thing is every development person needs to know that whoever they go to see is a human being just like them, right? It's, it's like the old saying, when I played athletics, they put on their pants the same way you put on your pants, right? We're all human beings. We all have brains. But we need to understand that the brain is highly predictable, right? A, a donor's decisions is linked to their limbic system, their limbic part of their brain, which is the oldest part of the brain. That's where survival kicks into play. We know the, you know, about fight, flight, freeze, right? That's what come, all comes from the limbic brain. And while a development person is meeting with somebody the first time, that limbic brain is working. They're making first impressions. That limbic brain is saying, do I really trust this person? Is this the type of relationship that I could have? Regardless of what you're saying or what you're doing, that limbic brain is at work in the donor's mind about what to do. And so we've got to understand that. And then we've got to make a connection. And we found six touch points that development people should use with a high wealth person when they meet with them that impacts the limbic brain of the high wealth person. And the first one is you've got to make sure they know that you know them. You've got to be able to demonstrate I know who you are. I'm comfortable with who you are. The second thing is the high donor is looking for contrast. They want to hear something in a new way that's different than what they've ever heard it before. They want it, their limbic brain wants a message that's simple. I say it's not paragraphs, it's bullet points. They listen to the beginning and end of a conversation. They get lost in the middle. So that first two minutes, you're with a high wealth donor is critical. And that last two minutes you're with them is really critical. They are stimulated visually. I interviewed the wealthiest man in North Carolina a couple of years ago, and I asked him to teach me to think like a wealthy person. 
He said, that's, that's not possible. I can't teach you to do it, but I can, I can train you on how a wealthy person thinks. And so I said, okay. He said, well, every high wealth person loves music and art. He said, now they love different kinds of music and art, but they're stimulated by the visual. And he said, for instance, I like contemporary art. And I looked around this office, there's all these contemporary art. And he said, every time a development person comes to visit me, regardless of how old they are, how experienced they are, what institution they're from, I'm thinking the same thing. And I said, well, tell me what it is. He said, I'm thinking how stupid they are. I said, why would you say that? And he said, because it's all about them and never about me. And he said, one day somebody's going to walk in with a proposal. Instead of having a picture of their institution on the front, there's going to be a picture of Monet. And the second page is going to be lyric from a, a song that I love. And they're going to tie into my visual, into my mental. Because one thing we need to know, we're not thinking people that learn how to feel. We are feeling people who learn how to think. And emotions rule with high wealth individuals. And so those six touch points, we train our clients in how to use those. And we create proposals that use those six touch points with high wealth individuals. It's all tied into the brain science and all that. Meg Foley on our team is a performance psychologist. And we use her to go in and train our clients' staffs in how to use these points in dealing with the donors. It's really fascinating. That is so fascinating. And I hope my listeners are taking some notes right now because that is a lot of information, but it's fantastic. So thank you for sharing that. Now, switching gears a little bit to certain things that have been working for a long time now maybe the neuroscience has bore this out in a long, you know over the last several years but research has definitely shown this that one of the most important ways to maximize one's fundraising is matching according to a report in fact recently by classy campaigns that utilize donation matching actually raise 3 to 5 times more money than those that don't so in your experience why is donation matching so critical for nonprofits and maybe there's some more neuroscience in there as well there is. So one thing we know about wealthy people, they love to compete and compare. Wealthy, high wealth people compete and compare. They want to know what other high wealth people are doing, and they like to compete and they compare. Matching gifts focus on competing and comparing, right? We're gonna we're gonna match this gift, and it's it's the competition, it's the comparison, and who else is given and who's the lead behind it. So what we know is there's literal matching. And there's psychological matching, right? And the literal matching is dollar for dollar. Somebody's going to give a dollar if you give a dollar. The psychology matching is somebody gave us $15 million. And we need to show the world that we can raise another $15 million some other way. So would you join us in matching what somebody has given? There's not a dollar for dollar, but it's a psychological match. And that drives performance three to 5%. We think if the psychological for high wealth people, it's even higher than that because of that compete, compare understanding that we have. We'll be right back. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast. If this is your first time listening to us, I want to make sure you're aware of a whole group of other episodes with fascinating guests that I previously interviewed. 
Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. There you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country and even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with others. This will help us get this great content out to more nonprofit leaders just like you. And finally, if you want to get my monthly email update that contains more resources in addition to these episodes, it's really easy. Just go to my website at nonprofitleadershippodcast.org and simply type your email address in the top right-hand box, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. And this way, you'll never miss any of the interviews or extra content from this show. And if you have any questions or comments, do not hesitate to email me. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. So interesting. Okay. Thanks for sharing that. Now, another interesting finding from a recent fundraising report pointed out that traffic from donors to nonprofits was actually higher now on mobile phones than a desktop. Now, this has been a recent trend. So the critical takeaway is that our nonprofits have to have a mobile-friendly version of our website and giving page. So maybe you could talk about this. It's kind of a nuts and bolts question. Have you found this also in your research? How important is it to have a mobile-friendly site so that people can give through their phone? So it's really interesting, Rob, and this is one of the challenges that we have in our profession and particularly with the 95-5 rule. The 5% aren't going to be giving to you on their phone. So the importance of the social media, the importance of the phone is to begin to engage with and build relationships with younger people that allows you to do your research and the capacity potential to see whether you build the relationships and move them to other places. So it's sort of like what I believe is the important uh, the the role of fundraising events. I don't like fundraising events because they so much time of staff and have low net returns usually. I don't like them unless there's a major gift strategy of follow-up to the people who attended the special events, right? The same is true with the mobile website and in all, even in our company, we spend a lot of time working on our website. We've never gotten a contract because somebody said your website looked great. But our website always opens the door. And that's why that mobile website, that piece is so critical to opening the door so people can begin to make these connections. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Now, staying on kind of the topic of online giving, it's clear that online giving is here to stay based on all the research I've seen. And COVID only further established that, I think. So for those who are listening, who realize they really need to improve the robustness of their online and giving experience for their donors, like in other words, their front door of their webpage or their social media page is not very good or not very user-friendly, maybe even more important. What are the most important next steps for them to maximize this shift to accelerated online giving? So the most emotionally intelligent people, the most wise people understand what they can do well and what they can't do well. And then they go get help. You go find an expert in that area. And guess what? You don't have to pay for them because they are, they are college students who are at a college majoring in all kinds of stuff who need internships, who need opportunities, who need real life experiences. You can get that expertise in a lot of different ways, where a mistake that, that I think a lot of nonprofits make is they try to grow everything themselves, and they feel like they can't afford the expertise. And you and I know that there are a lot of people who are willing to give you advice and are willing to help you. And, and sometimes you got to go treat that person as if they're a major donor. 
So I think even the smallest nonprofit can reach out and get people to help them build a robust social media platform. It's using the fact that we can't afford it is not an excuse that I think holds any, any merit. I'm really glad you said that because I do think I've definitely bumped into that with people on the show and just, you know, inner colleagues I've interacted with, they feel like, yeah, they have to get to a certain budget size or staff size to be able to really invest in that. And you're saying, no, there's more resources out there. Be creative. Look for interns that are looking for, or sorry, college students are looking for internships. Any other advice along those ways that you've found to be really helpful for nonprofits? Well, you know, and that gets us into sort of the, the conversation about the cryptocurrency. Yeah, let's, I guess, dive into that. Yeah, what's your take on cryptocurrency and whether or not nonprofits should really invest in that? Yes, so I think they should, but I don't think they should do it any way other than what I did. I went out and found what I felt is a leading person who understands cryptocurrency, and I brought him on to be an advisor to my firm so that he can help nonprofits do it. And this is why we think it's important. We think it's important because it begins to connect a different kind of potential to your organization. And you have nothing to lose by doing it. And, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, the early investors who are really getting into the computer are billionaires today, right? This cryptocurrency, we don't know, but it also demonstrates to your people that you're on the cutting edge. You see this as a new trend. You've been willing to go out and find that. So I brought on board Austin Mylott, who is incredible as part of our team and anybody who's out there who's interested, I'd be glad to connect them with Austin, who could just give them a, a 101 lesson in what it's about. And But I think it's going to be really critical for nonprofits to understand it, be able to talk about it, and at some point begin to accept it if it becomes acceptable. So if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, hey, it is a trend in our culture as a nonprofit, it's just smart to at least set the groundwork for being able to accept cryptocurrency and kind of time will tell if this is going to be an effective strategy, but at least get in the game, so to speak. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. And don't, don't, when somebody asks you, what do y'all think about cryptocurrency? Don't say, I don't know anything about it. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> I love it. That's the wrong answer. And there's people out there who will help you understand what it's about or that you could pick up the phone and call to have a conversation with one of your donors. You know, and it's interesting that, yeah, that's a great idea. And I have actually had two people already on my show that are somewhat experts in cryptocurrency. And so I encourage my listeners, if you missed that episode, there's actually two back to back. And it was fascinating. For me, it was an education about what's out there and how actually how easy it is. And you don't have to, like say, you don't have to really spend much money at all. Just a little bit of investigation, a few things you have to set yourself up in. And then it really is up to how many donors are willing to give in cryptocurrency. But as long as you're ready and available to receive those gifts, like you said, what's the harm? Uh, you're not going to lose much. So love that. Okay. One other thing that's maybe related, because I do think COVID just has driven more of us online for all kinds of things. Even that demographic that maybe didn't spend as much time online or didn't even give safe online or certainly wasn't on Zoom, but now all of those are commonplace. In your opinion, has COVID impacted the way nonprofits raise money in other ways? Or, or maybe a, to phrase it differently, how has COVID impacted permanently the way nonprofits raise money? I think it's had a, a huge impact, and I think it's very positive. Because one of the things that we're convinced of, you can build relationships on Zoom calls. 
which is going to save nonprofits time, expenses, and all different kinds of things. I even believe if you've established the relationship, you can ask for a million dollar gift on a Zoom call. And, and even the donors will even appreciate that because they know you're not spending the institution's money to buy an airplane ticket to fly across the country or go to a fancy restaurant to, to have a meal. So I think those nonprofits that embrace it, just yesterday, I did a board training by Zoom. It's not 100% as good as it could have been in person, but it was 85% as good. And it had the largest attendance they've had because board members didn't have to travel and they could be there and own and all. So I think it's transformative. And for the small nonprofits, I think it's, it's a great win for them. And for our company, our company has exploded because we can now have more clients because of Zoom. Right? I'm, not, I'm not spending time in the Sky Club in airports like I used to. And it's so interesting you say that. And I've heard, we've had several guests now have mentioned that same exact thing that not only is it more available where you can have a greater impact simply through Zoom and not jumping on a plane or going halfway across the country, but that donors are okay with it too. Even high net worth donors, even they are comfortable. Like you said, they're not offended by it. Interesting to hear that you could ask for a million dollars through Zoom. I think that's going to be something that people are like, oh, good. Okay, this is good. And it saves nonprofit organizations money. So that's fantastic. Really interesting. So for my listeners, how can they find out more about Bright Dot Fundraising and a little bit more about you if they'd like to reach out and uh, get to know you a bit? Sure. So the easiest way is to go to our website, www.bebright.com, and you'll learn about us. We call it, we have a D3 strategy, Donors Dreams Delivered. We focus on high wealth fundraising, the 95-5 rule. We focus on the five. They're in every community. We help teach and train and role play with and build proposals for high wealth individuals for nonprofits. So you can go on our website. You can get a 15 minute phone call with me anytime. We can talk through. I often talk with people. I'm getting ready to go see a high wealth person. What do I need to do? And that's just some advice I give over a, over a phone call. And we, we love having those type of conversations. Well, Bill, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's obvious you have a lot of experience in this and a lot of good data to back up your comments today. So thank you for taking time and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Hey, friends, I wanted you to know that this podcast can be found on both iTunes and Spotify. If you're wondering how to find it, just type in the words Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as possible. You can also find other resources and interviews of past guests on my website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Again, that website is non nonprofitleadershippodcast.org. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep making your world better.